Hello, Vetfolio listeners. I'm so glad you tuned into this podcast. I think you're really going to enjoy it. This podcast is sponsored in part by Hills and features Dr. Emmy Farrell, a third-year shelter medicine resident at the Oregon Humane Society who has a focus on veterinary forensic science. Parts of this discussion were difficult to talk about as someone who's not in the field of veterinary forensics, but I also felt like we were discussing something that needs attention and needs to be talked about. We discussed at length the link between animal cruelty and other abuses such as child abuse or elder abuse, and Dr. Farrell did an excellent job of illustrating the critically important role that we as veterinarians play in recognizing and reporting suspected abuse or neglect. Let me tell you a little bit about my guest and we'll jump into our episode. As I stated earlier, Dr. Farrell is a third-year shelter medicine resident at the Oregon Humane Society in Portland, Oregon. She's originally from Pompano Beach, Florida, and graduated from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine in 2017. Go Gators! She further obtained a master's degree in veterinary forensic science through UF while completing a shelter medicine veterinary internship at Oregon Humane Society in 2018. She's now pursuing the completion of her shelter medicine residency and has a particular career focus in veterinary forensic science. She regularly sees forensic cases through the Oregon Humane Society Humane Law Enforcement Department. Dr. Farrell feels very passionate about the education of veterinarians, law professionals, and first responders in regard to animal crime and hopes to use her career to further the field of veterinary forensic science. We're so thankful that you're out there doing the job that you do, Dr. Farrell. Let's jump in. Of course. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So you're currently pursuing a residency in shelter med, but you have a particular focus on veterinary forensics. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you became interested in forensics? I mean, it's just not not a super common pathway we hear about. Yeah, I graduated from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine in 2017, where I took elective courses in shelter medicine and veterinary forensics. And I actually pursued a master's degree through UF in veterinary forensic sciences as well. So after I graduated, I moved all the way out across the country to Oregon Humane Society and completed a shelter medicine internship. And now I'm on my last year as a shelter medicine resident, finally. I've always kind of had an interest in veterinary forensics since I was a kid, you know, watching animal cops. But really, I valued the concept of working with limited resources to find creative ways to gather information and attempt to put together pieces of a puzzle. So while veterinary forensics is an ever-growing field, historically, this field of medicine has been very closely associated with shelter medicine. However, we see cases of animal abuse, cruelty, or neglect in general practice, in emergency clinics, and even specialty hospitals every day. Shelter medicine has given me kind of the unique opportunity to pursue veterinary forensics and be able to treat and manage my patients and feel comfortable handling larger scale cases as well. But working with limited resources, as many shelters do, really allows me to be creative and prioritize steps as you kind of problem solve through these cases. I totally agree. The problem solving part of it, including the creativity that you have to find uh, when you don't have all the resources, is one of my favorite parts of veterinary medicine as well. And it seems like there's a lot of parallels between forensics and veterinary medicine. So combining the two seems like a natural fit. But like we said earlier, it's not really a specialty that we hear of very commonly. Why do you think that is? You know, as I mentioned, veterinary forensic medicine has been closely tied to 
shelters historically and the idea of animal control officers responding to complaints of animal abuse or neglect and the reality is that veterinarians all across the country and internationally see cases in forensics every day in their normal clinics. Unfortunately, there's a large deficit in the education of veterinary forensics across numerous career paths. And in fact, 37.9% of veterinary colleges in the United States offer no formal training in veterinary forensics at all. The remainder of colleges offer maybe one to two lectures um, that might cover a couple hours and covers the ethics of reporting animal crime. A few colleges offer electives, but again, these are primarily taken by students that are pursuing interests in shelter medicine, like myself. And with limited access to this information in veterinary schools, students graduate and are expected to know how to recognize and report animal crime without perhaps even ever being exposed to the concept while in school. Wow. So no wonder we don't always think of forensics in relation to veterinary medicine where it's not something that's taught to us in school. So if this were to be incorporated more into a veterinary curriculum, would you picture it more as like an elective for veterinarians who want to be in a similar field? Or is this something that you feel like all of us should be educated on? Personally, feel there should be a a minimum standard taught to every veterinary student on how to recognize and report suspicious cases of animal crime, which would be a great first step in improving our forensic education at all. Of course, electives and externships and wet labs would allow further expansion of the field. However, most students I work with don't even have non-accidental injury as a differential list or a, a differential on their problem list at all. We also see the lack of education across the board in police officers and law professionals and social workers. All of these fields are expected to know how to do, what to do when faced with animal crime, and yet many of them have never even been educated on how to recognize it. You're right. We, we don't have much training on this topic, so non-accidental injury is not always top of mind when we're triaging an animal. Is there any information about how commonly, say, a general practitioner would see a case where we would benefit from forensics training? And uh, could you give us some examples of that? Absolutely. There are several studies out there right now that looked at how, to, how often general practitioners encounter a forensic case and how adequately trained and prepared they felt to handle one. In 1999, a veterinary survey revealed that the average clinic sees about six cases of suspected animal crime in every thousand patients. Less than 8% of the veterinarians in that study felt they'd received adequate training in recognizing and reporting, and less than 40% understood their rights and responsibilities as a veterinarian. Similarly, JAVMA produced a study in 2017 where 87% of veterinarians surveyed had encountered at least one case of um, suspected animal crime, but only 55% reported. That's an 18-year span of time where we're still seeing veterinarians facing the same lack of training. I think the misconception is that animal abuse and neglect will fall solely to animal control officers or shelter veterinarians, when in reality, we should all be prepared to see a case and feel confident in recognizing and knowing based on our state or county who to report to. And of course, these cases come in all different shapes and forms, and while some may be very obvious, others are not at all. Some themes to consider as you know, a practitioner who might have a case presented to you is looking for things like changing histories or overly vague descriptions of events as you're kind of talking with a client. You may also consider a history in relation to your medical findings. Does it make sense? Could that sequence of events have led to the problems you have at hand? How chronic or acute is the problem? You may also notice a pattern of trauma or repeatedly seeking 
an animal uh, or repeatedly seeing an animal for unexplained injuries. It may also sound surprising, but many abusers, in fact, seek veterinary care after they've injured their own animal. The thought of, of seeing an animal abuse case and letting that animal walk out the door with no further intervention because I didn't recognize what was going on, that thought kind of makes me sick to my stomach. What about when abuse doesn't take the form of an injury that we need to treat? What about when it's more a general lack of care or neglect for that animal? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, talking about neglect or kind of breaking things down into one category of neglect and one of abuse, neglect can be a very fine line as many cases could result in just from lack of education or a lack of access to care, which is another crisis in our profession. More obvious neglect cases may be starvation, embedded collars, severe or strangulating mats, severely overgrown nails or hooves, and hopefully most veterinarians would feel comfortable recognizing that. The tougher cases for sure are chronic conditions and or lack of appropriate care. You know, neglect is defined as failing to provide the minimum care for an animal, so that could include food, water, shelter, medical needs, But I try to first run myself through like the five freedoms with these cases and ask myself, are their needs being met, you know, to a a minimum? I also ask, you know, does the client understand what I believe is medically necessary for this pet to have a good quality of life? And is this something a reasonable person would be able to recognize the problem and recognize that they should be seeking care? And still, even with these questions, it can be really tricky to decide when to report. One of my colleagues shared a thought-provoking question with me early on that was how would I proceed if this was my grandpa's dog? And that question has just really stuck with me. And I've kind of referred back to it with other cases that I've seen because my grandpa's dog is geriatric, the heart murmur, has terrible dental disease and may not have the best grooming care, but is comfortable and eating and not suffering. And so would I report him for neglect due to the severity of the dental disease? But if this dog was unable to eat or, you know, was in pain or was suffering and he was refusing to seek necessary care, then yeah, that, that dog needs help, right? Abuse on the other hand, or or cruelty, you know, comes more from the intent to harm. And so typically these cases would present hopefully with more obvious trauma or, you know, a pattern of trauma rather than having to kind of sift through the, is this appropriate care or not? What you may see with non-accidental injury is repetition of injury or unusual trauma locations. And um, a 2016 study actually compared motor vehicle trauma to non-accidental injury. Found that hind end trauma, pulmonary contusions, abrasions are more common with motor vehicles. A lot of animals present and the owner says, you know, I don't know what happened. They went outside. Maybe they got hit by a car. And so that's kind of the pattern we see more commonly with motor vehicles. Well, Facial trauma, so ocular injuries, broken teeth, facial fractures, front end trauma or rib fractures are more common with non-accidental injury. And keeping non-accidental injury on the differential list is, I think, the best place to start by asking yourself, you know, could this have been intentional? Does the story match the pattern of injuries? You know, I once had a case with a five-month-old kitten that had suffered from, you know, several injuries, but by the time I saw him had severe head trauma, showed up to the shelter and you know, the owner brought him in as, you know, she couldn't afford to take care of care at her clinic that, or emergency clinic that she went to. She was quoted a lot. So she ended up surrendering him to the shelter and receiving his records. I went through and looked and he had already been to the emergency clinic three times in this cat's five month life. And, you know, once for a traumatic tail injury, once for ocular hemorrhage and broken teeth, once for wounds on the face and paws. 
and now presenting to me for severe neurologic signs, emphysema, rib fractures, and you know, out of all those repeated visits, none of those veterinarians ever reported any suspicion. And now the fourth time, it was unfortunately too late for this cat. That is heartbreaking. That, oh, that poor kitten. Stories like that are, are heartbro- heartbreaking and they just really drive home how important it is to keep non-accidental injury on our differential list. Even though, at least for me, sometimes it seems a little scary to take such a definitive stance. Um, You think of stories like that and it's like, oh my goodness. So based on our talk here, it sounds like we may see cases like this more commonly than we expect, but hopefully this isn't a weekly or even a monthly occurrence. Even if we're seeing only like one to two cases per year, there's reasons beyond getting an animal like that poor kitten out of a bad situation that we should be able to recognize these, right? Oh, of course. Uh, There is an immense link that is recognized between cases of animal abuse and neglect and child abuse, elder abuse, domestic violence. This association is actually referred to as the link. And actually the FBI used to lump all animal-related crime into a miscellaneous category. And only in 2016 did they actually start separating animal crime into its own separate entity to try to link you know, these different connections that we're seeing and and figure out where to intervene. And so the FBI database now tracks animal crime in an attempt to intervene sooner. And we often see these acts of violence towards animals precede violence towards humans. So kind of a great spot to to figure out where's the place where we can intervene and, and make things happen in a sooner fashion. It's really important to remember, I think, that our animal patients may only be a snapshot into what's happening in the home behind closed doors. And Sometimes the only way other criminal acts of violence are discovered is through the investigation into an animal crime. There are numerous examples out there, but one that comes to mind is a a case several years ago at Oregon Humane Society, which an emaciated dog was removed from a home suspected of starvation. And at the time of the home visit, the officer noted a child that was also small and malnourished. And the family indicated the child had, you know, mental and medical ailments that had resulted in this. And as OHS cared for the dog and, you know, she gained weight and it was consistent with starvation and was thriving, the Child Protective Services was dealing with the investigation of the family and actually found that the child was being neglected as well and suffered, you know, as a result of prolonged lack of care similarly to this dog. And again, this draws back to that fact that there is so much crossover, particularly with reporting of veterinarians and law professionals and first responders that, so, you know, while you may see a case and feel uncertain about a potential crime. It's remembering that there is so much more beyond just this pet that could be going on. And, and that's an opportunity for us as veterinarians to perhaps intervene and create a series of, of sequences that may not otherwise happen. Thank goodness for people like you being able to study this and help all of us become more educated and better at recognizing these cases these stories, they're so, they're so difficult to talk about. It almost kind of makes me tear up a little bit. And I think you've made an excellent case for why additional training in veterinary forensics is so necessary. For those of us who are out there practicing now and who, like me, are feeling like this is something we really need to be more aware of and more prepared for, can you make a few suggestions on what we can do to be prepared for these cases? Like what kind of steps we can take preemptively and have them in place to make things go a little bit smoother if we do suspect abuse or neglect? Of course. I think educating ourselves as veterinarians before we see a case can make it a much easier process than having a case right in front of you 
and not having the steps in place or a course of action, it can be very overwhelming. So definitely remembering that non-accidental injury is a differential, great place to start in recognizing animal abuse and neglect. I'd also encourage veterinarians to know your state laws and know if it's mandatory for you to report suspected cases as a veterinarian, as well as, you know, what liability you may be free from based on your laws. And this is going to vary state to state. Based on your county, it may also vary as to who you contact when you do see a case. I have the luxury of being in Oregon, so Oregon Humane Society will pursue reports, while other states and counties, you may have to rely on your local police department to follow through. And when you do have a case that you suspect is animal abuse or neglect, always remember just document everything. Be thorough in your medical records and descriptions, as well as taking photographs if there's any evidence that you know may change, like body condition or wounds or nails or matting or things that you might be removing from the animal. You may not feel like a forensic expert, you know, but don't forget, like as a veterinarian, you are an animal expert. When you have a case with immediate needs, you know, you need to do what you have to do to, to make that animal feel better. But remembering that also, you know, you can't keep an animal against an owner's wishes. Um, however, if you do have an animal in your clinic, you can call the police and have them respond while the clients are still there. You can also call the police department to respond and um, come see a hospitalized patient if you ended up needing to do any kind of emergency care for it and keep the animal overnight. And, you know, unfortunately, you may end up with a deceased animal at some point. So, you know, little things like don't destroy the body or send it away um, and always refrigerate rather than freeze because the body itself is evidence. And so, you know, sometimes we don't know where these things are headed. You know, it's, it's our job as veterinarians to document everything, find the facts and report your suspicion. It's somebody else's job to investigate. And so gathering all the evidence and just having everything, not destroying anything is a great place to start for you're pursuing a police department or anything like that. It seems like such a natural connection, but it's still kind of hard to wrap my head around our ability to recognize abuse and neglect cases having such huge implications to human and animal well-being. I mean, I have two young kids, and the idea that my ability to recognize a problematic situation with an animal could be related to a child's well-being, that feels like a huge responsibility. I think that one thing that might hold us back in some of these cases, and I know it's kind of been in the back of my mind during our conversation, is that fear of being wrong and the backlash that could come with that. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, we, we know that vet schools are not educating new veterinarians on, on how to recognize and report. But as a veterinarian, you know, again, we are all experts of animal well-being. So feeling comfortable in that fact and, and knowing how to recognize is great. But remembering, and you know, you mentioned this earlier of fear of, of uncertainty, of, of having to make such a stance on something. And remembering that, again, like it's, it's not our job as a veterinarian to prove that a crime has occurred. We're only there to report based on our suspicion and let the experts do the investigating into seeing if it's a crime, do the investigating into laws to determine what crime may or may not have been committed. Unfortunately, as a veterinarian or a business owner, you're, you're bound to face backlash, whether your suspicions were true or not. People will have things to say. And while that may be unavoidable, uh, our responsibility, I feel, is, is to the pet and their well-being. And I would not want my human physician to be worried about backlash if they feared, you know, a child was being harmed. I'd want them to report. And I would rather face backlash personally 
then not report and risk an animal suffering or even dying. And not to mention the potential for, you know, the link to all these other acts of violence that could have already resulted in violence in the home, or, you know, you could be preventing additional violence that could occur, you know, after this for sure. So it sounds like some degree of backlash is just an unfortunate reality when we suspect these kinds of cases, but it may just be a risk we have to take knowing the enormous implications that it can have on that animal's well-being and beyond. And of course, being more educated on forensics would help us be more confident in our ability to recognize these cases. Definitely. I mean, we all will eventually see these cases and should be prepared with a plan of action on how to document our findings and, and who to report to. So that way we're not overwhelmed when we do see them. So it sounds like it's like so many things. Education is the key to help us recognize and differentiate all of these situations. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Farrell, it's been a pleasure talking to you. What an eye-opening discussion. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? No, I mean, I'm just happy to have a chance to, to get some education out there and, and hopefully help people and veterinarians feel more comfortable when they do see these cases down the road. Thank you so much, Dr. Farrell, for taking the time to be on our podcast. A difficult subject matter to talk about, but one that's so important. I also want to say thank you to Hills for sponsoring this event. To find more podcasts like this, click on the Education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.